Welcome, listeners, to the third season of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and your podcast host. Tune in and join me as I chat with authors writing in cozy and traditional mysteries. You won't find explicit violence, sex, or gore. You will find intricate plots, engaging characters, and brilliant writing. Thanks for listening. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Stacy Murphy joins me in the corner today to chat about her novel, A Deadly Fortune. Welcome, Stacy. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, A Deadly Fortune is a historical mystery set in late 19th century New York. Would you please tell us a little about your story? Uh, well, A Deadly Fortune uh, was pitched as um, a historical mystery in the vein of the alienists, and, and I've always thought about it as the alienist if Sarah Howard had been psychic. Uh, it's the story of Amelia Matthew, who is a Gilded Age orphan with a very moder- uh, modest psychic talent, uh, which she has used to create a life for herself. And um, then she is injured, has a head injury, and when she wakes up after having been in a coma, she suddenly has a great deal more power uh, that she can't handle. And she winds up trapped in the insane asylum on Blackwell's Island. And there are nefarious doings at the asylum. uh, And she will have to negotiate that, navigate her way home. Now, as you mentioned, the time period during which your novel is set is referred to as the Gilded Age. So what was that era like? And how did you choose that as a setting for your mystery? Uh, you know, I wanted to do, I love the Victorian era in England, but I wanted to, to set something in the U.S. And so New York was sort of the obvious place to do that. And the Gilded Age was that, that late 1800s, sort of 1890s period, um, where there was this huge disparity. There was this very, very glittering wealth and this very, very devastating poverty on the other end. And, and those coexisted side by side. So it was um, a time when there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of um, social uh, social turmoil because people saw the inequality and they wanted more mobility than, than society really allowed them. And so you had, um, like I said, these really wealthy people and these really poor people kind of rubbing shoulders day to day. And so I wanted to set my main character you know, she came from a, a nothing. She came from a poor background. She was raised in an orphan asylum. And she's now working in this club, seeing all of these very wealthy people every day. So I wanted her to, to have um, a window into a world that she can't really be part of. And what were some of the challenges that you faced in recreating the 19th century for 21st century readers? Um... Well, there's a a balance that you have to strike when you're doing historical of making it accurate, but still making it recognizable. Um, You know, you want to avoid modern slang, but at the same time, if if you're not careful about um, your your language, you can you can almost speak a language that that people won't understand if you're if you're trying to be too 19th century. Uh, And, you know, some some novels do a really good job of that. Uh, I just finished reading Lindsay Fay's uh, Timothy Wilde 
the first book in that series, Gods of Gotham, and she uses a ton of late 19th century, mid 19th century slang called flash. And it's amazing. Uh, and you have to pick a lot of that up from context. So that can be done really well or, or really poorly. And so you want to give people the flavor of that time without making it sound like a history textbook. And you also want to make it understandable to a modern reader. Now, another area besides language that's very different now compared to uh, the 19th century or uh, manners, uh, which were certainly more formal then than they are now, and, and public behavior that was more constrained then. So how did you translate those 19th century uh, behaviors and, and manners so that a 21st century reader could still relate to it without making the story seem out of time for when you said it. Sure, and I think that's one of the things that's so fun about that time period is that it does have these sort of exotic elements to the modern reader, the, the little bit of the language, the clothing, the decor, and the, the very strict etiquette code but it's not so far away that we can't understand why people are doing what they're doing. You know, you can, you can understand people's motivations. They make sense. Um, and, and one thing that, you know, those, those very strict codes existed, but those were always more um, an affectation of the upper class. Uh, regular people have always kind of had to do what they've had to do. And, and those were things that were put on, by very wealthy people to sort of differentiate themselves from you know, the lower classes. And so I was able to play with that a little bit because again, my main character, she's been around enough of those type of people to know what their behavior looks like and to be able to ape it to a certain extent, but she doesn't consider herself bound by that. And that gives her a lot more freedom than um, would be realistic if she were you know, the daughter of a wealthy man or that kind of uh, character. And you also mentioned that your protagonist, Amelia, is a psychic. So how did you approach researching psychic abilities and how did you make those seem believable for skeptical readers? Uh, so I don't actually believe in psychics and I didn't do much research um, for that. And in an early draft, I had her abilities kind of all over the place. She was doing all sorts of, of different things. And an early critique partner, actually my, my mentor, I, the uh, a Deadly Fortune was a Pitch Wars selection in 2018. And so my Pitch Wars mentor sat me down and said, look, you've got too many, the gutter doing too many things. I really need you to sit down and think about what the core of her talent is. And so I've set it up so that, you know, she always had these sort of minor inklings as she went through life and they, they helped her out, but she didn't, they couldn't, you couldn't count on them. They were too inconsistent. But, um, what I finally settled on was after she had this near-death experience, her power is based in death. So she can now um, see ghosts and channel spirits. And if she touches someone, if they've ever had a near-death experience, she can be pulled into that and relive that experience through them. Or if they are in uh, what another character later refers to as the Valley of the Shadow, if they're, if they're very soon to experience um, something that you know, risks their death, she will see a vision of that or see a vision of the possibility. And so that's that's how I ultimately approached her power was was it 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 has to do with her ability to touch death, and the fact that she has had that near-death experience and can now 
feel it in others. And spiritualism was uh, popular during this period and then it kind of made a comeback after World War I. So is, is, that, some, is that something you think you might explore in, in perhaps future works? Maybe. Um, I, I, I would love for this to be a series uh, and I have about a half a draft of a, of a sequel um, that I, you know, I really hope that I get to, to finish after this book comes out. I, I hope it does well enough that, you know, the publisher wants a sequel and that there are enough fans that, that would like to read the sequel. Um, I don't know if I would take it as far as post-World War I. Uh, you, can, you can understand definitely why it had such a, 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 no pun intended, a rebirth after that in the wake of so much loss and so much death and so many people who had lost people that they wanted to reach back out and talk to. But yeah, spiritualism was huge in that period. And it was very much in vogue for wealthy people to hold seances in their homes. Um, some mediums became very famous. And there were actually quite a few very scientifically minded people who really believed in it and, and really did a lot of experimentation trying to prove that, that these mediums and spiritualists were real. Uh, so it, it was a, a fertile time for that sort of story. And you also deal with the treatment of the mentally ill in the 19th century, uh, which was a, a maybe not fertile time, I guess, for uh, the, the understanding of uh, mental health. That was certainly different from our, our modern understanding. And we uh, certainly have treatments available, you know, such as uh, pharmacological uh, treatments now that weren't available then. So how did you go about researching the history of mental illness and, and helping your helping modern readers understand what that was like? Uh, so I, um, all of Amelia's experiences at the Blackwell's Asylum are taken from uh, Nellie Bly's 10 Days in a Madhouse. And Nellie Bly was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran. She was one of the early female investigative reporters working in New York for the newspapers. And she, there were, there were rumors, there had been talk that the Blackwell's Asylum was treating patients badly. And she got herself committed and went undercover and, and stayed there for 10 days until her editor managed to spring her. And she documented uh, overcrowding, terrible food, cruel nurses and staff, um, just horrible, horrible treatment that the women there were experiencing. And, and she wrote about it. And so that was the first thing that I did was I went back and I read that all the way through. Um, and it's really harrowing. I mean, it, you know, the Blackwell's Asylum was a city facility and it, it came out of a really good impulse. It was the first city funded facility anywhere in the country for indigent patients. So it was meant for poor people. Wealthy people, you know, had the opportunity, the, the ability to send their mentally ill, either bring someone in to the home to take care of their mentally ill family member, or they, they had the money to send them somewhere better. Um, but Blackwell's was terribly, terribly underfunded and overcrowded and, you know, did not attract particularly good staff. And, you know, a lot of the problem was that there just, there weren't really very many good options for treatment. You know, we didn't know anything then about mental illness or the pharmacology or, or really how to fix any of those things. So it was, it was really just about warehousing people and getting them off the street and, and, and you know, drugging them in, in some instances. Um, 
but I did want to make that as accurate as possible. And at the same time, some of what was completely true about Blackwell's Island almost felt like too much to include. You know, it was just almost too grim. Um, you know, nobody would believe that kind of kind of thing. Um, but in 2020, they might. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> After this year. Um, but I did also, you know, I, I, in writing historical fiction, I am of that school that is, you know, if it can be accurate and still work with the plot, then I will make it accurate. And, and I, you know, I, I include details uh, just for the sake of details because I nerd out and I love that. And so all of the psychological theories, all of the psychological works, all of the names of practitioners, not at the asylum, but all of the names of practitioners that are referenced uh, are, are accurate. And so I read a lot of 19th century psychology and psychological texts trying to get, you know, bits that would be, um, like I said, give that flavor of that time period without making it sound like I was just quoting the, the text. And your novel does illustrate how easily someone, especially a female with no social connections, can be basically locked away and forgotten whether she truly suffered from a mental illness or not. So. Absolutely. And Nellie Bly, I mean, Nellie Bly did that. She, she managed to get herself committed basically by walking around looking confused for a day or so. Um, she, she messed her hair up a little bit and seemed confused and said that she had lost her luggage and couldn't find it. And the next thing she knew she was, you know, they put her in front of a doctor and he kind of barely looked at her and said, yep, over to the island with you. And they put her on a ferry and took her over and, and stuck her in the asylum. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of women like that. There were a lot of women who didn't speak English. And so, you know, they couldn't really communicate with the staff or the doctors. Um, women who were depressed, women who were alcoholics or, uh, you know, just women who didn't, who were disposable and didn't have anywhere else to go and were... Um, nobody wanted to look at them on the streets. And so, um, and for a lot of them, it, it probably was better. They were housed and fed. So it was, it was better than, than dying on the streets. But if you didn't have social connections, if you didn't have somebody trying to get you out, you might go in and never get out because once you were in, you were in. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was not a, a great time. It was a, it was a, a terrible time for, uh, mental illness. But I mean, ironically, it was, at, you know, at that time, it was still the best it had ever been probably for mental illness. So it's all relative. Now, this is obviously a, a very uh, serious and important social issue. So how do you uh, handle incorporating serious issues into your, your mystery without it either turning into, as you said, a textbook or becoming preachy or just uh, becoming so dark that the readers are just overwhelmed? Uh, I mean, I think as long as you have, for, for me, as long as the characters are still lively and hopeful and moving through those circumstances and um, somebody you can root for and, and follow through and the hope of a happy ending, um, then I, I think you can touch fairly dark topics. Um, and I, I didn't want to make, there, there, there are dark topics in the book, but 
I don't really think of the book as being about particularly dark topics. I think about it as being about the relationships between these characters. Uh, and that's, that's what I really want to follow is their, their growth and their relationships with each other. Um, and I think the setting and the darkness of some of the things that were happening, I think of those as the backdrop, but not necessarily the actual theme of the book. And it, you, you kind of alluded to being a, a history nerd. You cover such a diversity of topics in your book, mental illness, psychic abilities, golden, uh, Gilded Age history. They're all research heavy. So how do you balance your research into all those different areas, which I'm assuming you kind of have to do somewhat simultaneously? Yeah. Um, everybody who writes historical fiction jokes about, you know, the, the rabbit hole of Google and you, you can research and research and research and never end up writing anything. Uh, I feel like whatever I'm writing, I need a good grounding in, first of all, the geography of the place that I'm writing about. So I did a whole lot of looking at old pictures of the asylum. There are, there are plenty of pictures online of, of the asylum at the time and, and in ruins later. Um, in Greenwich Village, a lot of those areas were extensively photographed even in the 1890s and you can find those those pictures online so I, I feel like I need to have a really strong sense of the place to get started um, so I did a lot of reading ahead of time and a lot of of um, googling and saving files with pictures and then I had a, a whole separate document where it was like just little cool little notes and it was like oh found this cool little thing that I'm gonna definitely include um, and, and so, you know, I don't really think about it too much. Once I have that and I start writing, I don't necessarily refer back to the research all that often because I feel like once I've soaked in it, I can kind of put myself there and, and write it without having to stop too much. Um, for, I mean, one tiny little cool detail that I, I think of as an Easter egg for myself because nobody else would ever think to check and, and nobody would know it was at one point I uh, needed to figure out if it was plausible that the asylum would have had a telephone because for a plot point would have worked better with a telephone. And I knew I could just write it that they had one, but I thought, well, I need to feel like to write that with confidence. I need to feel like it would, you know, telephones were a thing, but you know, had they made it into city facilities where they really, was it, was it plausible that they would have one? And so I started Googling and I found the actual New York City City Services Directory for 1893. And it had the actual telephone number for the Blackwell's Island Asylum. Um, wow. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, that's going in the book. So <laughs> I wrote that down and saved it. And that the number that the character calls in the book is the actual phone number of the asylum in 1893. Which, I, that's my favorite detail. And I was like, I realized that it's you know, not completely necessary, but I'm, you can take it out over my dead body because that's just too good. We're keeping that in. <laughs> Did you try calling it to see if anybody answered? No, it's, it's one of those old numbers where it's an exchange and like, oh, so a couple of people asked, well, you called it right. And I was like, no, it, it wouldn't work anymore. We have seven or 10 <laughs> numbers yet then. You know, oh God. It did work being the person now, this next question, I'm only asking this because I happen to be in Newport, Rhode Island right now. And this is an area that's quite famous for its Gilded Age mansion, uh, Gilded yes. Age mansions, like the Elms, the Breakers, and Rosecliff, and Marble House. 
So why do you think New York is a better Gilded Age setting than Newport? Just because I've got to give Newport some love because I'm here. Well, I'd love to I'd love to take these characters to Newport in a in a later book. Um, but Newport was where the rich people went. And so I needed for this book, like my characters are very much of that poor underclass. Um, and they have they have scraped their way out of it. Um, but they're they are not in a casual way rubbing shoulders with uh, the wealthy, especially the the you know top tenth of the top tenth of a percent who who had those giant mansions in Newport. But I would I would love to take them there in a in a future book. I think that would be a lot of fun. The mansions are say called cottages. Yes, yes, cottages like 50, 50 room cottages on estates with private beaches and their own marinas. And yes, yeah. <laughs> Just, just disgusting excess, and we all want to go and gawk at it anyway because it's amazing. Oh, I know they've, they've actually got them lit up for the holidays right now, so that's my my weekend trip. I think I'm gonna. Oh, I bet it's gorgeous. Uh, I bet it's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not casting any shade on New York. I just had to get in a plug. For no, no, no. I yeah, but I you know New York is is just such a rich environment. There are so many. You know, you can go in Central Park and have these sort of bucolic settings, and then you can have the slums, and you can have Fifth Avenue, and there, there's just so much, so fertile, so, so much ground that you can cover and you can do um, so many things in New York without leaving New York. That, I mean, that's true even today. It's, you know. And so when will A Deadly Fortune be available? It's coming out on January 5th. Uh, I'm very oh, excited. So yeah. yeah, coming right up at a month. We're recording this on what? The, the fourth. Yeah, so yeah, a month, a month from tomorrow. Wow. So the countdown begins. <laughs> well, congratulations on your publication day a month early. Thank you so much. And what's next for you? You, you mentioned that you hope this becomes a series. Or are you working on anything else? I, I drafted a part of a sequel and I have sort of one or two sentence plot thumbnails for several books after that. But we'll have to see how this one does. Uh, before we know if that will go anywhere. In the meantime, I'm working on a standalone. Uh, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, so I'm, I'm working on a World War II era standalone set in Washington, D.C., in which a woman assumes her twin sister's identity to uncover the mystery of what has happened to her sister. Wow. So I'm having a lot of fun with that, reading a lot of uh, World War II era history and, you know, listening to Glenn Miller. Yeah, the World War II in, in the nation's capital, you know, with the fake identity and missing twins sounds exciting. Yeah, I'm having fun with it. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, World War II is really popular and there's a lot of, a lot of World War II uh, mostly set in Europe and in Great Britain. And I really wanted to, to bring that back here. And, and I wrote about, oh, I wrote sorry, about no, New York, no. but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a DC person and uh, I, I actually really love this city. So I, I wanted to come back here and do that. Actually, it seems like a, a perfect place to, to I mean, you know, the, the whole war department. Yeah, you got that whole war there, infrastructure. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, DC grew enormously, just like tripled in population or something like that, just in a few years with everybody piling in to work and just tens of thousands of young women from all over the country came in to do war work. And so it was a hopping, hopping place. Yes, I actually grew up on the, the Maryland side of the oh, okay. capital region. So, um, and yes, my parents were federal workers. That's how we ended up in that area. Uh, yeah. 
So, uh, and, and in January, where can readers buy a copy of A Deadly Fortune? Anywhere. Your local bookstore. Uh, it is on Amazon. It is on IndieBound, at bookshop.com, directly from the publisher. Um, yeah, should be able to get it anywhere you want. Uh, do you know if it'll be out in audio? It is. There is going to be an audiobook. I just got, I was just able this week to announce that there will be an audiobook. Um, I, the goal is around the same time as the hardcover and the, the ebook, but um, the timeline on that is tight. So we'll have to see if they manage to get that done. But, but yes, there will be an audiobook also. And where can readers connect with you and find out more about Gilded Age New York and World War II era DC and what, and keep, keep up with what you're up to? Well, I have a website, uh, Stacy S-T-A-C-I-E, Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, Stacy Murphy Author. I'm on Instagram as Stacy.Murphy. I'm on Twitter as at Stacy M. Writes. And that's actually probably where I hang out the most is, is on Twitter. But, you know, I'm all over the place. Great. Right, well... Thank you very much for joining me in the corner today, Stacy. I'm excited about your, your new book and, and your future endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today has been Stacy Murphy, author of A Deadly Fortune, available this coming January 5th, 2021, a new year. Yay. So that'll make a great New Year's present. So until next time, goodbye. Thanks, listeners, for joining me for another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listened. Follow the podcast on social media. I'm on Facebook as The Cozy Corner Podcast and Twitter and Instagram as podcast underscore cozy. Now you can support me on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month and get a shout out on an episode of The Cozy Corner. Support at higher levels gains access to patron-only posts, thank you gifts, and giveaways. Sign up at www.patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.